At Cape Canaveral, Florida, the Army's Jupiter-C rocket is ready for America's second attempt to launch a space satellite. The hours-long countdown approach, but all that can be done to assure perfection has been done. The moment is at hand. The countdown reaches zero. What's going on, everybody? I am Logan, the 64th Gear Jammer Skeel, and this is Toy Talk. All of these models laid out in front of me. I'll get to talking about them later on in the video. Following close on the heels of the Soviet Union's Sputnik 1, which put the first artificial satellite into Earth's orbit on October 4, 1957, America met the Russians' challenge to space and successfully launched its first orbital satellite into space on January 31st, 1958. And here, guys, here is that satellite. It was called Explorer 1. Explorer 1 left Cape Canaveral, Florida, launch pad aboard a Jupiter-C rocket and entered Earth orbit a few minutes later. Explorer 1 then became America's first artificial satellite to orbit the Earth. The race to space was on, and America had stepped up to the challenge. Here, guys, is a diagram of the instruments that make up America's first successful satellite. Explorer 1, it carried several scientific instruments into space, one of which was a cosmic ray detector designed to measure the radiation environment in Earth orbit. Here, is the three men that were responsible for the success of Explorer 1. At the far left is Dr. William H. Pickering, former director of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which built and operated the satellite. Dr. James Van Allen here in the center from the State University of Iowa. He designed and built the instruments of Explorer 1 that discovered the radiation belts that circle the Earth. Dr. Van Allen then had the honor of naming those radiation belts, well, the Van Allen belts. And then, here at right, is Dr. Werner Von Braun, leader of the U.S. Army's Redstone Arsenal. And that is the team which built the first stage of the Redstone Jupiter-C rocket that launched Explorer 1 into space. Explorer 1. It orbited the Earth every 114.8 minutes, or a total of 12.54 orbits per day, until its batteries died on May 23, 1958. Explorer 1 sent a continuous stream of data back to the Earth. The satellite then remained in Earth's orbit for more than 12 years. Explorer 1 finally re-entered Earth's atmosphere and burned up somewhere over the Pacific Ocean on March 31, 1970, after more than 58,000 orbits. It is one thing to send an unmanned satellite into space, but it is another thing entirely to put a man in space. Sending a satellite into space is relatively simple but a manned spacecraft with an astronaut is a far more complicated procedure. After all, we want to bring back the astronaut in one piece. As you might recall from my other video, 
the Russians chose the uninhabited plains of Siberia for their cosmonaut landing site, while the Americans chose the vast Pacific Ocean for their astronauts' landing sites. Each country chose their landing and recovery sites for several different reasons, but their main two reasons were a sense of security and a place far from civilization. As a result, each country had to develop search and recovery vehicles to recover their men and spacecraft. Russia, they turned to all-terrain vehicles and air, land, search, rescue, and recovery vehicles, while America turned to air, sea, search, rescue, and recovery vehicles. My previous video talked about the Russian extreme all-terrain vehicles that they used for their search and rescue of their cosmonauts. Please go on and see my other video over here. And today's video is going to talk about the development of the American Air Sea Search and Rescue and Recovery Vehicles. Since America decided to bring their astronauts back into the Pacific Ocean, America then turned to the U.S. Navy for help. The Navy used aircraft carriers and they used helicopters and other ships and vehicles in the search and recovery efforts. Aircraft carrier-based helicopters played a major role in the extraction of the astronauts from the sea. With the help of U.S. Navy divers, the helicopters were able to lift the astronauts from their spacecraft and up to the helicopter and then carry them back to the aircraft carrier. A second helicopter then plucked the spacecraft from the sea and carried it back to the carrier. Sounds like a simple, straightforward task. By and large, it was a simple task if everything went according to plan, like it did with Alan Shepard's landing, where it was only 11 minutes from splashdown till recovery sitting back on the aircraft carrier. However, Murphy's Law would kick in at any time and would destroy those well-crafted plans. Example, the weather might call for a glass smooth sea and the sea at the splash town would be anything but smooth. Or as happened with the return of the Apollo 15 crew, one of the three parachutes failed to open, causing the spacecraft to fall at 32 feet per second instead of the calculated 28 feet per second that it should have fallen with all three parachutes fully deployed. This made for a much harder landing for the Apollo 15 craft and men than was anticipated. A side note, the Russians only used one parachute on their Soyuz capsule. In the case of Grissom's Liberty Bell 7, it sank on his exit from the craft. Despite efforts from the helicopter to lift it from the sea, it filled with too much water through the open hatch, and it just became too heavy for the helicopter to lift. So the helicopter crew had to cut it loose, and it sank to the bottom of the ocean. 38 years later, Liberty Bell was located and recovered from the bottom of the ocean. In July of 1999, Liberty Bell was recovered, restored, and has been a traveling exhibit in, for museums ever since. And there's Liberty Bell. The aircraft carrier here and the helicopters, they played the most important role in the recovery of man and spacecraft for the Americans. However, there were a number of other support vehicles that played equally important roles after recovery of man and machine. 
Once on the carrier, there was an Airstream trailer waiting for them. It was there to quarantine the astronauts. Its purpose was to prevent the unlikely spread of moon germs, whatever those would be, by isolating the astronauts from the contact with other people. A converted Airstream trailer, the mobile quarantine facility, it contained living and sleeping quarters, a kitchen and a bathroom. It provided living space for the astronauts until the carrier either reached port or the trailer was airlifted off of the aircraft carrier. Astronauts, together with a physician and a technician, remained in it for 88 hours or until the NASA scientists were sure that the astronauts were not infected with moon germs. The mobile quarantine facility was used throughout all of the Apollo missions. Other specialized vehicles were used in transporting returning astronauts, like this modified bus. It was an extension of the mobile quarantine facility. It was used to move the astronauts to other quarantine facilities. They also used cargo planes and trucks to transport the astronauts and the spacecraft on their final legs back to the return to NASA's Johnson Space Center. And there's NASA's Johnson Space Center. So there you have it, guys, a brief look into the vehicles that were used by America in the recovery of their man and spacecraft prior to the introduction of the space shuttle, that is. And the space shuttle changed all that with the first wheeled runway landing of a reusable spacecraft, very much like an airplane lands. Now, on to the models here in front of me. The first one here is a Forces of Valor. 1700 scale replica of the USS Enterprise CVN 65. It was the first nuclear powered aircraft carrier and the eighth ship in the US naval history to bear the Enterprise name. She was active from 1961 all the way up to 2012. While the Big E was never used in the recovery of astronauts, other aircraft carriers were, like the USS Essex, the USS Hornet, and the USS Ticonderoga. Ravel Model Kits. They made this 148th scale Skorsky helicopter, HRS-1, for the U.S. Marine Corps. This is one of the many different helicopters that were used in the recovery of American astronauts and spacecraft in the Pacific Ocean. Flying above me up there, is the Renwall plastic model kit of a U.S. Vanguard rocket with either a Vanguard TV-3 satellite or a Vanguard 1 satellite. The Vanguard TV-3 was to be the first American satellite in space. However, the rocket that was lifting it off the ground lost thrust just two seconds after liftoff, causing the rocket to fall back to the Earth, rupturing the fuel tanks and exploding. However, the TV-3 was thrown a short distance away from the rocket on, and the explosion. While it was down, it still continued to send out data. However, the satellite was damaged and could not be sent back into space. It has since been restored and is on view in the Smithsonian. The Vanguard 1, though, that was America's second satellite in space. 
and it is still orbiting the Earth today. It is also known as the oldest man-made satellite to orbit the Earth. It was also the first satellite to be solar-powered. Somewhere in 1965, its transmitter broke, so it can no longer send data back. But being solar-powered, it is still collecting data. The rest of these models around me were made by Dragon Models in their Dragon Space product line. In the last 10 years, Dragon Space made numerous models of the technological marvels of the 20th century and of current modern-day spacecraft. These models represent the culmination of human achievement in space, leading to and the aftermath of a man walking on the moon. We're going to start off here with a 172nd scale Gemini spacecraft. It is Gemini 4 with Edward H. White II exhibiting America's first extravehicular activity, or spacewalk. That happened on June 3, 1965. The Gemini program first used the Gemini Titan II launch vehicle to lift the two-man spacecraft into space. It was developed from the U.S. Air Force Titan II Intercontinental Ballistic Missile. Over here, we have yet another 172nd scale Gemini spacecraft. This time, it's Gemini 7, the craft that was crewed by astronauts Frank Borman and Jim Lovell, where they spent almost 14 full days in space, making 206 orbits, which was the longest space flight in the history at that point. It also was the first to rendezvous with another spacecraft, Gemini 6A. Ironically, launched after Gemini 7, Gemini 6A rendezvoused with Gemini 7 for 270 minutes at a range of only one foot apart, just 12 short inches apart, while the crews were talking to each other on their radios. Over here, we have a 172nd scale Mercury spacecraft, and it has the escape system on it. This one is Freedom 7, as it was flown by Alan Shepard, when he became the first American to enter space with a suborbital mission lasting only 15 minutes and 22 seconds. His mission launched on May 5th, 1961. It followed three weeks after Yuri Gagarin's first flight into space by a manned spacecraft, Vostok 1, on April 12th, 1961. Shepard's suborbital flight was launched with a Redstone rocket. Over here, we have a 172nd scale Redstone rocket. It also has a Mercury spacecraft with escape system on it. This time, though, it is for Liberty Bell 7, when Liberty Bell 7 was ready for launch. Liberty Bell 7 was piloted by Virgil Grissom, and was a successful flight with a demonstration of recovery failure when Liberty Bell 7 sank shortly after the hatch was blown open, as I talked about earlier in this video. And then, here guys, we go over to the big one, the 172nd scale Saturn V rocket for the historic Apollo 11 mission to land the first man on the moon. Apollo 11 was commanded by Neil Armstrong, 
with Edward Buzz Aldrin piloting the Lunar Module and Michael Collins piloting the Command Module. For size comparison, in one 70-second scale, this Saturn V rocket is five feet tall. And over here is a Redstone rocket to show you how much bigger the rocket required to be just to get to the moon. These are both in 172 scale. Just amazing how in such a short time we went from this to this. Keeping with Apollo 11, we go way over here to the lunar module. This one is the Eagle, and it is in 148th scale this time. The Eagle was famous from the Apollo 11 mission where Buzz Aldrin landed the Eagle, this little craft, on the surface of the moon for the first time a human craft was piloted and landed on the moon. And then Neil Armstrong became the first man to walk on the moon. This mission gave two of the most famous quotes of the 20th century, both of them by Neil Armstrong. The first one was when Buzz Aldrin landed the craft onto the surface of the moon. Neil said, the eagle has landed. And then the second most quote is, and it's probably even more famous, after Neil climbed down the ladder, stood on the pad, and then finally stepped off the pad onto the moon, he said, that's one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. Behind the lunar module here, we have a 1-400th scale Saturn V rocket that carried the ill-fated Apollo 13 mission into space. Apollo 13 was flown by astronauts Jim Lovell, Jack Swagger, and Fred Hayes. And it had a planned landing site of the Fraumora Highlands on the moon. However, an oxygen tank explosion changed all the mission parameters to simply getting the crew back home alive, which they did on April 17, 1970. For reference, this is one 400 scale Saturn V rocket, and this over here is a 172 scale Redstone rocket. You can tell that they're almost the same size, even though they're in totally different scales. Flying around the moon back here is a 172nd scale command and service module, and it is for Apollo 8. Apollo 8 was the first crewed spacecraft to leave Earth's orbit and the first to reach and orbit the moon back in 1968. It did 10 laps and then it returned to the Earth. The flight was crewed by astronauts Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and William Anders. Apollo 8 took 68 hours to travel the distance between the Earth and the Moon. And then the crew orbited the Moon 10 times for a total of 20 hours, where they were surveying possible landing sites for future Apollo missions. The men returned successfully to Earth where they splashed down in the northern Pacific Ocean on December 27, 1968, where they were picked up by a helicopter and transported safely back to an aircraft carrier. And that's it, guys. All of these models have been made in scale. And to go along with that, I've got a free report on scale. It details what the most popular scales are, so go on and grab your free copy at the link in the description below. And as always, please like, comment, subscribe, and ring that bell to get notified of all of my future videos. Thanks for watching.
I'm Logan, the 64th Gear Jammer Skill, and this is Toy Talk.